Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. The podcast allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. Welcome to the new season of Black Tech Unplugged, and also Happy New Year, Happy 2023. To kick off this new season, I did something special with the women who host the Modern Figures podcast, and we did a crossover episode. So on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jeremy Waysom and Dr. Kyla McMullen, and we talk about all things academia when it comes to tech. So how to actually get into a professor or teaching role, as well as what it actually means to be a professor. Because let me tell you, it is not what we think it means. And there's a lot that professors have to do besides teaching students. So this episode will be very informative, as well as you'll learn more about their podcast, the Modern Figures podcast, and what inspired them to create it. Now, before we jump into the episode, I want to give you some background on both of the women. So Dr. Jeremy Waysom is an instructional assistant professor in the Department of Engineering Education. Her research focuses on effective mentoring strategies for underrepresented populations in engineering. She earned her bachelor and master of science degrees and PhD in civil engineering from the University of Florida. Dr. Kyla McMullen is a 10-year track faculty member at the University of Florida's Computer and Information Services and Engineering Department. McMullen also has a personal commitment to encouraging women and minorities to pursue careers in computing and other STEM fields. You'll learn more about what they've done within the tech field. You can also find their papers within the show notes for this episode. So learn more about these women. Also make sure to go check out their podcast where they interview me so you can learn maybe a little bit of new information about me. So while you're subscribing and supporting Black Tech Unplugged, make sure to do the same for the Modern Figures podcast. And link to their podcast is also in today's show notes. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and I really hope you enjoy the crossover. If you do, make sure to rate and subscribe on both podcasts today. You can find all of our podcasts on any podcast platform. You can find Black Tech Unplugged, obviously at blacktechunplugged.com. And you can find the Modern Figures Podcast at modernfigurespodcast.com. That's it for me today. So let's go ahead and jump into the episode so you can learn more about the ladies. Let's get it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged. I'm so excited to start the new season and the new year with a crossover episode. So let me introduce you to the ladies of the Modern Figures podcast. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Kyla. How's it going? We good. are good. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm doing something new for these episodes, so I want to start in with what I'm calling a check-in. So tell the listeners your name what your current role is, and how long you've been in tech. Okay, yeah. I'm Jeremy Waysom. I am an assistant professor in engineering education. And it's really hard for me to answer the last question. We're going to go with five years, question mark, question mark, but we can get into that (laughs) later. (laughs) Hilarious. I am Dr. Kyla McMullen, and I'm an associate professor of computer and information science and engineering. And I don't know how to answer it either. I feel like professionally, (laughs) I've been in tech since like 2011-ish. I would say that's like my first job teaching 
tech, being a lecturer. So that's 11 years, but I learned how to code in like 2000 slash 99. So I'm oh, like, you okay. know, I've been in tech for quite a minute, but professionally. Did you just rock while you said just I've a been little in tech? Bit. <laughs> <laughs> I've been here for a minute, you know. Oh my! I'm just goodness. saying, I'm gonna start telling the students like I've been in tech longer than y'all been alive. So, oh. it's at that point now. Like you're, yeah, you're right there. Yeah. <laughs> so you ladies work on the academic side of tech. Did you know this was the area that you were always gonna go into? I would say, you know, I definitely did not start off thinking that. So I was a, you know, consumer and didn't think of myself as a producer of the knowledge. You know, I went through grad school, I got my PhD, and then I had an awesome mentor who said, hey, you just finished your PhD, you need to come and give a talk at my school and be faculty. And it was like, wait, what? I did not, we did not discuss this. He really broke down what being faculty was like for me because you, as a college student, you don't know what faculty actually do. You only see 20 to 30% of their job. You just know that they sign you some work, make you do some homework, teach at the front of the class, and you think they just disappear and think about students all day. But that is not what we do. There's a whole research component. If you're an assistant professor or associate or any sort of person on that tenure track, and you are basically running a small business with your research lab, you get a certain amount of money to start up. You have these projects that you have made up that you hope will generate more money. So it was definitely a whole different world that I was exposed to. So for me, all All of the great parts about academia were highlighted in terms of I go to conferences for free. Someone else is footing the bill, usually a grant or some money that I have from the university. But I've been all kinds of places with zero dollars coming out of my pocket. And it's super flexible. Aside from going to class or having meetings, there's nowhere I'm supposed to be. There's nobody that's coming to look for me in my seat from nine to five. And all of those perks made academia really palatable for me. So how often are you actually teaching? Oh, like 20 to 30-ish percent. Are you serious? Really? Yeah. I had absolutely no clue. So what are you doing with the other 70% of your time? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So there's three broad buckets, research, teaching, and service. So the teaching part is the bucket that students see. And then if you have another class that you're teaching, they don't always see that other class too that's pulling at you. But the research part is writing grants. Once you get the grant, doing the research around that grant, running your lab, making sure that the students, the PhD students that you're training are doing what they need to do and are equipped and basically training them to be researchers as well, basically kind of like apprentices. You're writing research papers that are either going to conferences or going into journals. You may be writing book chapters. There's also service to your profession. So you may be on a program committee for your academic area. You're reviewing grants because oftentimes it is a good practice to, once you have received a grant, to sign up to review because it is a really laborious process. So, you know, you might be reviewing papers for conferences. There's a lot. But those are the main things that we're always doing, always trying to get more money, always writing more grants to fund the students and fund the research. I think you checked most of the boxes. There's some other like little administrative things that everybody has to do. Filling out forms all the time about stupid stuff and answering emails. 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 
always all the emails. emails. Somebody always wants something. And then like yeah. you might be on committees in your department. You might be on the committee that handles all the graduate admissions, or you might be the person who helps with graduate student recruitment day, or, you know, there's mm-hmm. other things as well that will get tacked on from your department, or you might be on a committee for the whole university. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's a lot. Y'all, this is a lot, a lot. How do you stay focused and organized because your hands are in so many different pots? How are you not tired? (laughs) We are. So I think the people who you see who are really effective in academia have created a system for themselves to be functional people, right? And so on some levels, like not everybody's meant to be an entrepreneur, right? So not everybody's really meant to be an academic because it does require you to be able to create your own journey in a lot of ways. And if you are not the type of person who's going to take initiative, like be a self-starter, like have ideas, like constantly generating ideas, have lots of questions, it's really hard to be successful in academia. We do a lot of things, but we were probably always people who did a lot of things. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of people tended to be, like you said, like captain of all the clubs. and You're used to managing a bunch of different things at the same time. That makes a lot of sense because, as you mentioned, you said that you have to make your own career path. Yeah. And a stagnant person or someone who is not going to put in the work is not going to do that successfully. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can't remain stagnant because the research changes so much. And taking a step back, Jeremy, you never shared if you always knew you would be in academia. So interested to hear your side of things. I always thought like I would actually be like a consultant one day, which is like kind of ironic talking to you about (laughs) consulting. But I came into college through like a summer bridge program and got to meet someone who was like in administration in engineering And I was like, oh my goodness, like what you do is amazing. Like, I love what you're doing. And so it helped me see that there were other roles in academia. Because Kyla, I didn't understand. What is a faculty member? Like, they just teach me things, right? (laughs) They have patches on their elbows. And And then they disappear. Like, I never (laughs) see them again. And so I did stuff like I was a Ronald E. McNair scholar while I was in school. And that allows you to understand what research is and see opportunities to pursue research. And then I did other programs that help expand your view of what academia could be. So there's a program funded by the National Science Foundation that allows students to get that exposure to graduate school too. And it has similar milestones and conferences where you can go and meet people. And so I got to participate in those things and realize, okay, I want to be a dean of a college of engineering someday. Like, that's my goal. And then it was like, okay, how do I get there? How do I navigate that structure to get there? And so I went to Nesby multiple times for one specific meeting where they have a dean's roundtable discussion and just listen, like sit at the feet of giants in academia, people like Gary May, who's like chancellor of UC Davis and hear from them about how they navigated academia to get to the positions that they're in. And every time it was like, you need to be a full professor. You need to go through the ranks of tenure and promotion. And so I started that journey when I was an undergrad. Like, what do I do to ensure my success following this career path that I see that people have that I want? 
So I was weird because I knew I wanted a PhD when I was in seventh grade. Wow, Jeremy, really in seventh grade? Well, okay, so for people who are listening, they want to get in the academic world similar to you ladies. What do they need to do in order to take that similar path? Get a PhD. (laughs) (laughs) Right, get a PhD. And like, that's like the entry level sort of professorship, you know, after the PhD, like you start off as assistant. And then it's basically you're on a six year job interview, where the university's deciding if they want to keep you like if you're a valuable member. Yeah, like you can think of it as basically every single day. This was the stressful part where you're wondering every day, like, is the decision that I'm making something that's going to move me closer to or further away from tenure. So you know, a lot of people, you know, are really stressed out in that phase because, you know, you want to make the most of your time and make sure you're putting yourself in the best position. Then after tenure, you're like, I can do things that I want to do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, still research, but like, you're not always, at least for me, like not always trying to be so strategic about so many things and like, oh, I don't want to do this project because it has a three-year lead time before we see anything. And I need to get this Um... result in this many years. You know, I could have time for the things that have a slower burn. So it's the only way to get into academia, getting a PhD. What if you just want to be a teacher only? If you want to be instructional faculty, you don't need a PhD. In some degree programs, you can have a master's degree. But it's really competitive in a lot of disciplines. I would say if you are in computer science, you could get away with having a master's degree and stay on the instructional side. You can still do some research and and a lot of places will expect you to do research in your instructional role. But the promotion criteria is different than if you were to pursue a more research focused professorship position. So yeah, but other fields like the MFA is their terminal degree, for example, like you can be a professor with a master's if you're in like fine arts. arts and yeah. So it's not every PhD, but definitely engineering, sciences, basically everything except the arts. (laughs) This might be helpful for you, Dina. So I got my PhD. Then I did two postdoctoral positions where I had a PhD, but I was still like a PhD in training. And then I took an instructional faculty position. So I was an instructional assistant professor or a lecturer is what a lot of places call them. So at that point, like I'm teaching classes, I'm in front of classrooms, I'm responsible for 90 to, you know, a hundred and some odd students. And then I just transitioned recently into an assistant professor role. And so my distribution of what I'm responsible for shifts. So those three buckets that Kyla mentioned, instead of my teaching being the majority of the pie, now the research is the majority of that pie. And I want to also add an asterisk. Jeremy's journey is not the typical journey. Usually you don't transition from being instructional faculty to assistant professor. Yes. Her department was newly forming. So it was like, Mm -hmm. it was a slightly different case, but usually you apply straight out of a postdoc into an assistant professor. Like you would not go into um, an instructional faculty position if Mm -hmm. your end goal was to get tenure. You just go ahead and straight away apply for assistant professor. 
Yeah, but it was good because she got a chance to be a part of the forming of the department from within and everything. But usually if you are interested in tenure track role, you wouldn't first start off by applying for instructional. You know, usually usually they are siloed, like either you're going the instructional route or you're going like the tenured tenure track route. So you would just straight away out of your Ph.D., apply for assistant professor and, you know, go to associate and then full and then become the university president because you are. No, I'm kidding. We're also not talking about like there are lots of other roles at universities yeah. too. That's a perfect segue because I was gonna ask, okay, so two things I want you to go over. One, I want you to talk about those additional roles, but first, just to reiterate, I want you all to go through the pathway of becoming an actual professor. And let's so we didn't mention lecturer the first time. If you have your master's, think about what topic in your area really resonates with you. Like what's something that you want to delve deeper into? What's a piece of literature that you want to just find out more about and find out at what university are they doing that work? Who are the really good researchers in that field? And apply for PhD programs where the people are doing the work in that field. Because in undergrad, you think about, oh, I'm going to apply to Harvard, Stanford, Yale, because they're great all around. When it comes to research, it's more about that individual researcher. So somebody might be at University of Nowhere, but they're the most world-renowned person for a specific topic. So even though people may not think first about that one school, when they hear that professor's name, they might be like, oh yeah, you worked with this person. I don't care where it is. They will train you well. You'll look good when you're on the market. So I would say first starting off figuring out what research you would like to go into and doing research with that person to get your PhD. Mm -hmm. So now you have a PhD. So now you have a PhD. Yes. So what's next? Our mutual mentor, Juan Gilbert, will tell you. <laughs> Juan is next. That's right. Meet Juan Gilbert. <laughs> okay. There's there's three things that people look for when, when you're applying on the market. It's where did you go? Who did you work for? And what did you do? Okay. So we've already talked about who you worked for. So you picked the best of the best or or the person next to them to go work for because you like them and you did your PhD and you're great and awesome. They're going to look at where you went. So if they didn't go somewhere great, that's okay. You just need two of these three to matter, right? So they're going to then look at what did you do? So if you Mm -hmm. did something that was amazing and awesome, everybody's going to want you. And so that what did you do is your research and the area that you did your research in. Okay. So let's say... Your professor was at a great school and they weren't so well known, but the work that you did was filling a gap that the space needed. You're hireable. But if you choose to go work with somebody because you just like them and they were at a mediocre school and the work that you end up doing is really mediocre, it's going to be hard for you to find a position in academia because there just are aren't that many places that you can be if you want to pursue a career in academia at the top levels of academia, which is Mm -hmm. a whole other conversation that we haven't had yet. Oh boy. Well, thankfully we have time. So I start going into that a little bit. So there's all sorts of institutions, right? Just like when you're thinking about what do I want to go get my bachelor's degree or do I want to go to community college, right? They're all different types of institutions. So There's two-year colleges, there are four-year colleges, there are four-year universities, 
There are private institutions. Some of them are focused on teaching. There's Mm -hmm. the HBCU, HSI, and there's one for Indigenous schools as well. So all those minority-serving institutions are options as well. So all of those places have faculty. You can pursue a career in academia in any of those places. What we're talking about on terms of like what we've accomplished and the goals that we have align mm-hmm. better with what people traditionally think of when they say, I'm going to go into academia, which would mean yeah. that you would pursue a position at what is called a research one institution. And we're kind of moving away from this now where there's an entity that ranks schools and places them based off of research expenditures, graduation rates, all that jazz Mm -hmm. into these different buckets of like a research one, a research two, or research three institution. And so if you're pursuing a research one, then you're at an institution that's very highly ranked. They're an enterprise in terms of research dollars. Activity. Yeah, and what they're able to accomplish. So they're usually the people that you see highlighted in the news for work that they've accomplished, things that are really transformational that are happening, especially in technology. So if you want to pursue a role in that, that's when those three things really matter, right? Mm -hmm. Where did you go? Who did you work for? What did you do? And so you can pursue the tenure track position at those places, and then you would follow the assistant associate full promotion process. So that's that. They have the same processes at other places, but you wouldn't have as much resources. And by resources, I really do mean money, but also facilities. Time. Um, (laughs) Yes. People like support personnel. Mm. So think grant administration team, potentially support for editing and even the formation of internal grant review opportunities or even workshops on how to submit grants that are led by people. They fly in to help improve your grants success rate. So when you're at a school that has all those resources, you know, obviously you're more likely to be successful when you're coming from a place that isn't as well resourced. It's a lot harder because there just isn't the infrastructure that you need to be successful. You have to do so much on your own or figure it out for yourself. I remember being at a university that was still research one, but it didn't have as much infrastructure as my current university. So a lot of the things that go into, for example, submitting a grant, I'm like, why am I doing this budget? Why am I doing this? Like there's people who I just send it to and they make sure it's right and I don't have to worry about it. So yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a startup versus a fang company. The startup, you're doing a lot more of the legwork yourself. You're doing a lot more of the stuff where there's a whole department for it, you know, yeah. at a larger company. And it's like a startup within a startup. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You're liable to like, startup inside of a startup. <laughs> yeah. So you've got the entity that's a startup that's doing pretty well. They're holding it together and they're like, ooh, let's start this new venture over here. We're going to put <laughs> you in charge of it. Right. right. So you, as the professor, would be the person who's now dealing with the rest of the startup and trying to figure out, okay, well, where can we scrap the resources together to get the things going? Versus like, I am a startup within a fang. I have infinite resources. Exactly. (laughs) I've got, you know, the expertise of my colleague over there. Mm-hmm. And the expertise of my colleague over here. And I can pull them into and this. And we can if all I have work together. Money. First off, Kyla, definitely appreciate the analogy. That was very helpful. That's my specialty. <laughs> and, you know, we keep bringing up researching and grants. And 
I know that's a big part of academia, but we need to break that down a little bit. So why don't we do that right now? Let's talk about how researching and grants affect your role. Okay. Where do we start? Okay. I feel like the first thing we have to talk about is what is research? Because if you don't understand research, then the grants don't matter. Right. Okay. So, you know, our job primarily on the tenure track assistant associate full professor adventure is to conduct research. Research is at the very basic fundamental level, asking good questions and finding the answer. And finding the answer may involve a multitude of things. So it could be, I'm creating a new piece of technology. I'm improving existing technology. I might be looking at just the learning outcomes of someone engaging with technology or looking at how to improve user experience with technology. There's so much. I could follow someone's trajectory and like write research about their trajectory. I could look (laughs) at (laughs) research about the researcher. Yeah. It's like really meta almost. So there's so much you can do and there's different techniques, methodologies, ways of understanding how to ask and answer questions that we are supposed to impart to our, in this case, students to help them ultimately answer a question that's missing in the existing canon of knowledge in our space. So in my case, my space is looking at mentorship and self-efficacy for people in engineering and computing. And Kyla... Completely on the opposite side. 3D audio. Yeah, we're looking (laughs) at how people interact with with virtual environments and use realistic sound to figure out how to move around. But there's so many like little niche areas that everyone studies. So it's more like finding a really small question. Like you have to know the research too. So you have to do a lot of reading to know what are the things people are asking. So then you can go in and ask the correct question because you might come in on the first day and say, oh, I know what I need to figure out. And either the research could show nobody wants to know that or two, we already found that out actually. Or Or number three, three, you have a more pressing problem. Or it's so big. (laughs) Yeah, so big you need to scope it down to something smaller. We can't eat the whole pizza. Right. Right. Like, let's just eat this one piece over here. Yeah. Because you've been eating all this time. Right. People think you have to like invent cold fusion to get your PhD, but it's literally finding an area and answering a few questions that we did not already know. It's about contributing to the literature. You don't have to make this grand gesture of research and invent something. And, you know, it's I don't need you to find a galaxy far, far away. That's very helpful in regards to learning more about research. And to be very clear, research is not going to Google and searching for some answers there. You actually have to go into great depth with what you're researching, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're not talking about a Google search. Right. That's just called a search. That is not research. That's just search. (laughs) So how are students learning to research? I feel like research is such a forgotten skill now. 
Yeah, it's about knowing what's going on in the research area, because there's no way without reading, you can know what's going on in a research area. And then you get so like, for example, in our department, we have students write a survey paper as one of their first milestones on the way to the PhD. It shows, oh, you've read everything in this area and you can show how you would make a meaningful contribution. You can say, where are the holes or where's innovation needed? Or, you know, just showing like, I know this stuff and now this is how I intend to add to it. So then you do a proposal and it's basically, it's kind of actually like a grant proposal where you say, this is what I'm going to do to get my PhD. And then that dissertation we hear about is the write-up of how that went. (laughs) But you said, I'm going to do this thing. And you get training along the way, either through the courses that you take or through engagement with other people in the research group, other faculty. You learn that you need to conduct the type of research that you want to do. So like for me, it's like, am I going to do quantitative or qualitative or mixed or multi-method research? Most of what Kyla is doing is experimental. So it's a little different than what I do. So they're like actually physically engaging with things or she's typing things into the computer and telling it what to do. So this sounds like the science fair. Remember those where you had to do some sort of experiment and then write about it and present it to people. This all sounds similar to that. Is that accurate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure those still exist. They still exist. Yeah, it's like that where you are varying. You have a really tightly controlled experiment and you just want to affect or assess, you know, effect A versus effect B and keep everything else the same. And you run people through this experiment where they get this one, people get, one set of people get one treatment, one set of people get another treatment, and you have some evaluation metrics that you basically compare them by. So some, like a lot of the evaluation metrics I use are like how long it takes them to do something, how accurately they do the task. So it just depends on what the question is that you're asking and picking the correct way to evaluate whether or not they've completed the task. Or even just like designing the piece of technology that they will use that's what I was thinking about more yeah. so than like human subjects research, right? Like, yeah. There is a piece of like, how do you create technology? Yeah. And what does that look like? Yeah, if you're getting a peer like CS degree, like if you're doing something that's like automation or something that is, let's say you're looking at two processors and you're looking at two different ways to, like even with the load balancing thing we were talking about, you can look at different ways to conduct load balancing tests that actually represents the way that users use the system because even that's a science in itself. So as I mentioned, also the science fair projects, you have to write these reports, right? Mm -hmm. And these aren't like small reports. These are pages showing everything that you learned from your experiment. Right. So for your research, when you're writing things up, how much actually goes into the report? And what's the structure of that report? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) But the general format is, you know, some sort of introduction slash motivation where you say, okay, why in the world is this important? And then some background literature, like things people need to know about your topic before you can start talking about the awesome stuff you did. And then you write like a method section that is like so detailed that a five-year-old could repeat your experiment if they needed to. And you just write down, these are the type of people I use. This is the procedure they went through. This is what I measured. You know, just every single piece of their experience. 
and then the results. So you may have a few graphs, group A versus group B, or one or two graphs comparing some evaluation metric of group A and group B, and then a discussion, because you can't just assume that the graph tells the whole story. You Mm -hmm. know, you may have some result that you didn't anticipate, or there's another factor at play here. So your discussion sort of puts words to what the graph is. Yeah. And then future work sometimes like, okay, we found this out and next is this. So you've got all of that, right? You present or disseminate your findings at conferences. You may have workshops that you provide people because what you've done is something that you need to walk people through. Like you don't want them to just be out in these streets trying to do the things. (laughs) You want to give them a methodological approach to to doing things. And so... You know, you're doing all of this as a student, as faculty, we're monitoring what you're doing, making sure that you're not missing things. There aren't huge gaps. You're not taking these giant leaps to reaching those conclusions. Everything that we do that counts is peer reviewed, which means that other faculty, other graduate students, other postdocs are reviewing your work and saying, okay, yes, this is credible. We're going to let other people see it now. That either means we'll publish it in this journal, we'll publish it in these proceedings from a conference, you can come and give this talk at this conference. Okay, so that's research. And all of that, you have to know, (laughs) how do I set up a study? And how can I take what I want to do what I am skilled enough to do, and say, give me the money to do it? Right, because all this work we've been talking about does not happen for free. So as we hear in tech, we know that it's hard to get investors, but for you all, you need to get money to actually do your work. So where do you get money from? So there's so many places where you can get money, actually, which is surprising to me. Most of it is government money in the United States, but also in other countries. A lot of sponsored research comes from government, government. agencies. Yeah. yeah, Because they are of... Research is of national interest. So like if we are able to create innovative anything, they want to know. They want to be able to leverage it for the purpose of improving society. One of the Um, biggest funders is the National Science Foundation. I think there was some study like 90% of computer science research is funded by the National Science Foundation. And the way that works is it actually is very similar to a research proposal where you, and almost like a paper too, where you say, what are you doing? Why are people interested? What is the background on this? What's some stuff that you've done Mm -hmm. just to kind of prove that you're in the right direction? So you might have some preliminary results to show you're on the right step. And then you write, what is your plan to do next with all of their monies? And then you have a timeline. (laughs) Yep. Of what steps you're going to take and what's going to take what long. And then they also want to know, since this is money coming from taxpayers, how does this affect taxpayers in general? Like what are the broader impacts? How does this help the average person? And then also the intellectual merits, like how does this add to the overall knowledge that we know in this field? And then there's another section that's like, if we've given you money before, what did you do with that money? And what were the outcomes just to like show everyone? Then there's sometimes a piece about the team just to show that you have there's the right There's always people. a piece about the team. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you have to make sure you have the right people in place. So they ask for like you, everything about your life. Like, yes. where have you been since you were 12? Who's your mom and them? <laughs> they like, do not. 
But if you think about it, this thing is 15 pages. And one of our grants that Jeremy and I have is a million dollars. So divide a million dollars by 15 pages. The reason I say that they ask about your mom and them is because there's all these additional documents Mm -hmm. that include like a bio sketch. What have you worked on? What have you published? Where did you go to school? Yeah. Who was your advisor? (laughs) Who do you collaborate with? The budget. So like a whole breakdown of the budget. Not just I'm spending this amount on this. It's every like year. a paragraph terms, like the budget justification. Like I need money to pay students because students have rent. Like not those words, but you know. But those words. <laughs> you know, every dollar needs to be accounted for. And then if there's a postdoc on the project, you have to say how that person's going to be mentored through the project. And so if you're NSF. managing a lot of data, <laughs> you have to talk about a lot of how you're going to. Yeah, it's a lot of work. But once you write a good one, you kind of just rinse and reuse for other ones. For those supplemental documents. Yeah. And then it's not themselves that determine. I mean, they do, but they get a panel of people who are in your research area. And about maybe five people will look at it within a larger panel. And then they'll start to just separate people into highly competitive, competitive, and we ain't going to talk about them. So that takes about two days. Yeah, as a student, I didn't know you all were doing all this stuff behind the scenes. I literally thought you came and taught class, graded papers, and then you went on about your day. (laughs) You have no idea as a student. Yeah, I'm glad you broke this down for us. But I think this is very important because people need to realize that professors are doing a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. It but is you're not lot. doing it all at the same time. You might write like maybe two proposals a year or, you know, you kind of disperse it or you're working on small pieces of things. I was, did you see my face when you said that? You wrote you a said, whole ton. I'm in a weird spot because when you first start out, you don't have anything. You got to like throw spaghetti at a wall, see if it's going to stick. In my case, I've been really blessed and I had great mentorship. So I walked into the job with grant money which is not normal. Most people, day one, they're like, okay, I have this idea, this idea, this idea, this idea. (laughs) I need to collaborate with you and you. and But you don't know how to do it because no one's ever walked you through grant writing. And you're not just grant writing, you're teaching a class. You suddenly have students that you need to figure out how to manage. There are no resources in your lab space. And you're black and you're a woman, so everybody wants you to talk on every panel. You don't, you don't have a computer. Your students don't have desks. You don't have your lab space set up. None of that's ready. And you're just expected to just start here. doing research. I'm going to teach y'all a subject I haven't seen in five years. And you're going to learn it. It's chaos in the beginning. So when you <laughs> see somebody who gets their first tenure check position, pray for them. Because it is hard. It is it's really, a lot. really hard. Someone like Kyla gets promoted and gets tenure. It's like... We did it. We like, did we it. We overcame the, the odds. We. Yes. Like, collective we. Because we are all supporting uh, each other in this journey. And you cannot, there is not a single human being on earth who gets tenure on their own. You ain't doing it. It's not possible. It takes yes. a village. Yes. All this work seems to be a team. Like it takes a team effort to do everything in academia. And it was a team effort. Matters. Real talk, after talking about everything that you do as a professor and being part of academia, I don't know how you all have any time for a life. Like, literally, you are always busy. That would no, be they don't think we have lives. Life. 
All right, I don't think we had lives. Listen, I will say this though, they they definitely think our job is to be there to teach them. And there's an expectation that you gonna learn me some knowledge. And it's right. like I and you're on call for their education. They really think you all are on call? Yeah, they think you're on call for their education. It's like I emailed you three hours ago <laughs> and I didn't get a response. It's like you have no it's idea like, what I've happened been in, in that three, three hours. Meetings. And you want me to point something out to you that's already on the syllabus? That I said in class. But you didn't come or you were on Instant Messenger. <laughs> I know I said this a lot of times already within the podcast, but this is a lot. Right. I can't believe everything that professors have to do. And y'all still are doing it. Okay. So we said all the chaos, but we also are still here. Right. Right. We love our jobs. I have a great boss. Kyla has a great boss. That's a good thing because as we all know, a boss can make or break your experience at a position. Oh, yeah. Jeremy, Kyla, thank you for breaking down the life of being in academia because I'm sure like your students, most of us thought you had an easy life, but it is hard. There's a lot of stuff that you all are doing behind the scenes. So appreciate your insights. And I would be remiss if I didn't take some time to do the whole purpose of this crossover and talk about your podcast. So tell my listeners a little bit about the Modern Figures podcast. So (laughs) Modern Figures is a podcast that dispels the myths and preconceptions around being a Black woman or girl in computing to inspire the next generation of the advanced technology workforce. It's hard to believe that like, we're in the like 50s, almost 60s episode level of things. Yeah. Because this was like, I think we could do this. I mean, I saw the steps. I'm like, this can happen. <laughs> so what inspired you to start the podcast? Dina, like the fact that you're the person asking us this question is really ironic because it was inspired by you. Right. Hearing about your amazing platform and the things that you're doing. But also we had a lot of autonomy to design something it could have been anything it could have been a youtube show we could have done a little docu-series we could have done a lot of things but we were like nah what's really missing what's great though is that you still have the space and time if you want to do those other ideas that you just mentioned yeah yeah yeah. i think like storytelling is the most compelling thing to inspire people and when you hear their story and you hear what they came from this sinks in so much more than like a flashy video because i feel like people can like relate a a lot and we started out in a different format too where everybody's in the same space and people were getting flued out to come and record with us and it was we were being very researchery we were like everyone must have these set of questions instead of the structure yeah and then we were like why are we doing this like right it's meant to be a conversation style podcast right so like if we're gonna have a conversational platform like let's converse not conversate because i don't believe in that word (laughs) but that's not a word Beyonce said it was, so a lot of people believe uh, it. Irregardless, nothing <laughs> that word. So yeah, I think we iterated on that and decided what we would do instead of sending people questions and making it all structured. It was, let's just make some large categories of things and see where the conversation goes. And it's been amazing to have people who are CEOs, people who are doing really incredible things at the national level, like being aired on BET levels on the stage with Michelle Obama level. Right. And then this kid who decided they wanted to make it out. Make it out. And everybody in between. 
Isn't it always astonishing to see the people within your network and the amazing stories that they have to share? Agreed 100%. Yeah. I was just going to say that the timing of us creating this podcast was really the community needed it. We'd seen efforts that were being developed in computing. So you have to keep in mind, we were a part of an organization that was federally funded for Black people in computing, right? And so we knew all of the major players in that space. Yeah. There were resources for almost everyone else. And we were just like, uh, <laughs> you know. Somebody needs to know hi. your story. Right. <laughs> Isn't it crazy that these people are in your network and you know their story, but every time you interview someone that you know, something interesting comes up that you had no clue happened within their trajectory? Right. Oh, yeah. It is so amazing. And I have to ask, out of all the podcasts that you've done thus far, who is your most memorable guest? Hmm. My favorite story is Jamaica Burge. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jamaica is always just because, You know, when you think of people who are like goals, like Michelle Obama goals, like I just see her as someone who is so genuine. Like her heart is just like a heart of gold. And seeing her success feels like it's like your success. It's not like just me. It's like, this is a community win. Like we're doing this for us. She's putting her all into everything that she does. And she's an introvert. And that blows my mind that someone who doesn't want to talk to people goes above and beyond outside of themselves for the greater good of everyone else. So if you are introverted out there and you're like, I can't do the things that the extroverts do. Yes, you can. Yes, you you don't have to be an expert to affect people. Were there any recurring themes that you saw from the guests that were on your episodes? Nobody's story is like the same. Every yeah. story is different. I think if there's one thing that's come out of us doing this is like the single story narrative has to die. Yeah. But I think like it's more so the commonalities in everybody's stories that really strikes me because one commonality we always find is having community. You know, people thrive having community and seek community. No man is an island. You know, you don't do this by yourself. And it's so crazy how people talk about how they were completely running in one path and it just took one person on a random Tuesday to say, hey, did you think about over there? And it just changed their whole life trajectory. And it happens Mm -hmm. like that for so many people. And it's like, wow, that this is really something we need to study. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're over here doing the research now. Yes. Can I get this funded? (laughs) Right. I mean, we're trying to. Can this count? Oprah, are you listening? (laughs) (laughs) Or Mackenzie Scott, okay. Right, Mackenzie Scott, where you at, girl? (laughs) Now, Kyla, don't think I forgot about you. Who has been your most memorable guest on the Modern Figures podcast? Man, that's a good one. Because, like, I know a lot of the upcoming ones we've recorded are good. Like, Jamika, episode five. Jamika's good. (laughs) And also, had her back for another one. She's five and 37. And it's called Black Computer, Chicken Soup for the Soul. And she's talking about Black Computer, which is a complimentary organization where it's all about Black women in computing. There's a conference and it's just a wonderful time being a Black woman in tech. It's Mm -hmm. just 
such a safe space. Mm-hmm. And she's one of the creators and founders of this group. So she's talking about that one in episode 37, but her actual story is in the episode Jeremy mentioned for Computer Science is for Everyone. Yes, Computer mm-hmm. Science is for Everyone. Now, for people who are listening, where can they find the Modern Figures podcast so they can listen to the Jamika episodes as well as your other guests? Apple, Google, Spotify. On our actual website, modernfigurespodcast.com, we can listen to the episodes there. But every place that you would normally find podcasts. Kyla, Jeremy, you have shared a ton of gems with my listeners today. And you've also helped us learn that professors in academia do a lot more than just teach. So thank you for that. (laughs) However, to end the episode today, just want to give you an open floor. Is there anything else, tips or advice that you would want to share with my listeners before you go? I would say tech can be like a toxic place regardless of where you are. And people can oftentimes try to make you feel as though you're less than, but just keep in mind that everybody had to learn at some spot. And just because you may not know something now doesn't mean that you can't learn it. So there's a lot of mediocrity trying to disguise itself as genius. So you're going to learn it just like somebody else did. Don't let anybody else put you down. My comment would be, you're not an imposter. And I'm somebody who I tell people I'm a fake computer scientist. Oh my God. I don't code, but like I actually teach introductory block coding in part of my course. Like I'm She'd not like, I actually <laughs> have grants that come from computer, the computer science, science <laughs> directorate. I am submitting proposals that relate to artificial intelligence and augmented reality and Tech is really a thing that is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. We can all be a part of it. So if it is something you're interested in, there are opportunities for you to leverage the skills that you have in that space too. So just believe in your ability to do that. Thank you for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the show on all social media platforms under Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It will help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.